Chapter Twenty Four, Part Two of Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty Four, The Hundred Years' War, Charles the Seventh and Joan of Arc. 1422-1462, Part Two. This very year, on the 6th of January, 1428, at Dom Remy, a little village in the valley of the Meuse, between Neuf-Chateau and Van Couleur, on the edge of the frontier from Champagne to Lorraine, the young daughter of simple tillers of the soil, of good life and repute, herself a good, simple, gentle girl, no idler, occupied hitherto in sewing or spinning with her mother, or driving afield her parents' sheep, and sometimes even, when her father's turn came round, keeping for him the whole flock of the commune, was fulfilling her sixteenth year. It was Joan of Arc, whom all her neighbors called Jeannette. She was no recluse. She often went with her companions to sing and eat cakes beside the fountain by the gooseberry bush, under an old beech, which was called the fairy tree, but dancing she did not like. She was constant at church, she delighted in the sound of the bells, she went often to confession and communion, and she blushed when her fair friends taxed her with being too religious. In 1421, when Joan was hardly nine, a band of Anglo-Burgundians penetrated into her country, and transferred thither the ravages of war. The village of Domremy and the little town of Van Couleur were French, and faithful to the French kingship and Joan wept to see the lads of her parish returning bruised and bleeding from encounters with the enemy. Her relations and neighbors were one day obliged to take flight, and at their return they found their houses burned or devastated. Joan wondered whether it could possibly be that God permitted such excesses and disasters. In 1425, on a summer's day at noon, she was in her father's little garden. She heard a voice calling her, at her right side, in the direction of the church, and a great brightness shone upon her at the same time in the same spot. At first she was frightened, but she recovered herself on finding that it was a worthy voice, and at the second call she perceived that it was the voice of angels. "'I saw them with my bodily eyes,' she said, six years later, to her judges at Rouen, "'as plainly as I see you. When they departed from me I wept, and would fain have had them take me with them. The apparitions came again and again, and exhorted her to go to France for to deliver the kingdom. She became dreamy, wrapped in constant meditation. I could endure no longer, said she, at a later period, and the time went heavily with me as with a woman in travail. She ended by telling everything to her father, who listened to her words anxiously at first, and afterwards wrathfully. He himself one night dreamed that his daughter had followed the king's men-at-arms to France, and from that moment he kept her under strict superintendence. "'If I knew of your sister's going,' he said to his sons, "'I would bid you drown her, and, if you did not do it, I would drown her myself.' Joan submitted. There was no leaven of pride in her sublimation, and she did not suppose that her intercourse with celestial voices relieved her from the duty of obeying her parents. Attempts were made to distract her mind. A young man who had courted her was induced to say that he had a promise of marriage from her, and to claim the fulfillment of it. Joan went before the ecclesiastical judge, made affirmation that she had given no promise, 
and without difficulty gained her cause. Everybody believed and respected her. In a village hard by Domri she had an uncle whose wife was near her confinement. She got herself invited to go and nurse her aunt, and thereupon she opened her heart to her uncle, repeating to him a popular saying, which had spread indeed throughout the country. Is it not said that a woman shall ruin France, and a young maid restore it? She pressed him to take her to Van Coulours to Sir Robert de Baudricourt, captain of the Ballywick, for she wished to go to the Dauphin and carry assistance to him. Her uncle gave way, and on the 13th of May, 1428, he did take her to Van Coulours. I come on behalf of my lord, said she to Sire de Baudricourt, to bid you to send word to the Dauphin to keep himself well in hand, and not give battle to his foes, for my lord will presently give him succour. "'Who is thy lord?' asked Baudricourt. "'The king of heaven,' answered Joan. Baudricourt set her down for mad, and urged her uncle to take her back to her parents, with a good slap on the face. In July 1428, a fresh invasion of Burgundians occurred at Domremy, and redoubled the popular excitement there. Shortly afterwards, the report touching the siege of Orléans arrived there. Joan, more and more passionately possessed with her idea, returned to Van Coulour. "'I must go,' said she to Sire de Baudricourt, "'for to raise the siege of Orléans. I will go, should I have to wear off my legs to the knee.' She had returned to Van Coulour without taking leave of her parents. "'Had I possessed,' said she in 1431, to her judges at Rouen, a hundred fathers and a hundred mothers, and had I been a king's daughter, I should have gone. Baudricourt, impressed without being convinced, did not oppose her remaining at Van Coulours, and sent an account of this singular young girl to Duke Charles of Lorraine, at Nancy, and perhaps even, according to some chroniclers, to the king's court. Joan lodged at Van Coulours in a wheelwright's house, and passed three weeks there, spinning with her hostess, and dividing her time between work and church. There was much talk in Vancouver of her, and her visions, and her purpose. John of Metz, also called John of Novelampon, a knight serving with Sire de Baudricourt, desired to see her, and went to the wheelwrights. "'What do you hear, my dear?' said he. "'Must the king be driven from his kingdom, and we become English?' "'I am come hither,' answered Joan, "'to speak to Robert de Baudricourt, that he may be pleased to take me, or have me taken to the king.' but he pays no heed to me or my words. However, I must be with the king before the middle of Lent, for none in the world, nor kings, nor dukes, nor daughters of the Scottish king, can recover the kingdom of France. There is no help but in me. Assuredly I would far rather be spinning beside my poor mother, for this other is not my condition, but I must go and do the work, because my lord wills that I should do it. Who is your lord? The Lord God." "'By my faith,' said the knight, seizing Joan's hands, "'I will take you to the king, God helping. "'When will you set out?' "'Rather now than to-morrow, rather to-morrow than later.' Van Coulour was full of the fame and the sayings of Joan. Another knight, Bertrand de Poligny, offered, as John of Metz had, to be her escort. Duke Charles of Lorraine wished to see her, and sent for her to Nancy. Old and ill as he was, he had deserted the Duchess, his wife, a virtuous lady, and was leading anything but a regular life. He asked Joan's advice about his health. "'I have no power to cure you,' said Joan, "'but go back to your wife and help me in that for which God ordains me.' The duke ordered her four golden crowns, and she returned to Vaucouleur, thinking of nothing but her departure. 
There was no want of confidence and good will on the part of the inhabitants of Vaucalur in forwarding her preparations. John of Metz, the knight charged to accompany her, asked if she intended to make the journey in her poor red rustic petticoats. "'I would like to don man's clothes,' answered Joan. Subscriptions were made to give her a suitable costume. She was supplied with a horse, a coat of mail, a lance, a sword, the complete equipment, indeed, of a man-at-arms, and a king's messenger and an archer formed her train. Baudricourt made them swear to escort her safely, and on the 25th of February, 1429, he bade her farewell, and all he said was, Away then, Joan, and come what may. Charles the Seventh was at that time residing at Chinon in Touraine. In order to get there, Joan had nearly a hundred and fifty leagues to go, in a country occupied here and there by English and Burgundians, and everywhere a theatre of war. She took eleven days to do this journey, often marching by night, never giving up man's dress, disquieted by no difficulty and no danger, and testifying no desire for a halt, save to worship God. "'Could we hear Mass daily?' said she to her comrades. "'We should do well.' They only consented twice, first in the Abbey of Saint-Urbain, and again in the principal church of Auxerre. As they were full of respect, though at the same time also of doubt towards Joan, she never had to defend herself against their familiarities, but she had constantly to dissipate their disquietude, touching the reality or the character of her mission. "'Fear nothing,' she said to them. "'God shows me the way I should go, for there too was I born.' On arriving at the village of St. Catherine de Fairboy, near Chinon, she heard three masses on the same day, and had a letter written thence to the king, to announce her coming, and to ask to see him. She had gone, she said, a hundred and fifty leagues, to come and tell him things which would be most useful to him. Charles the Seventh and his counsellors hesitated. The men of war did not like to believe that a little peasant girl of Lorraine was coming to bring the king more effectual support than their own. Nevertheless some, and the most heroic amongst them, Dunois, La Hire, and Zantrai, were moved by what was told of this young girl. The letters of Sir de Baudricourt, though full of doubt, suffered a gleam of something like a serious impression to peep out, and why should not the king receive this young girl whom the captain of Van Coulour had thought it a duty to send? It would soon be seen what she was and what she would do. The politicians and courtiers, especially the most trusted of them, George de la Tremoille, the king's favourite, shrugged their shoulders. What could be expected from the dreams of a young peasant girl of nineteen? Influences of a more private character and more disposed towards sympathy, Yolande of Aragorn, for instance, Queen of Sicily and mother-in-law of Charles the Seventh, and perhaps also her daughter, the young queen Mary of Anjou, were urgent for the king to reply to Joan that she might go to Chinon. She was authorized to do so, and on the 6th of March, 1429, she with her comrades arrived at the royal residence. At the very first moment two incidents occurred to still further increase the curiosity of which she was the object. Quite close to Chinon, some vagabonds, it is said, had prepared an ambuscade for the purpose of despoiling her, her and her train. She passed close by them without the least obstacle. The rumour went that at her approach they were struck motionless, and had been unable to attempt their wicked purpose. Joan was rather tall, well-shaped, dark, with a look of composure, animation, and gentleness. A man-at-arms, who met her on her way, thought her pretty, and with an impious oath expressed a coarse sentiment. "'Alas!' said Joan, 
Thou blasphemest thy God, and yet thou art so near thy death. He drowned himself, it is said, soon after. Already a popular feeling was surrounding her marvellous mission with a halo of instantaneous miracles. On her arrival at Chinon she at first lodged with an honest family near the castle. For three days longer there was a deliberation in the council as to whether the king ought to receive her. But there was bad news from Orléans. There were no more troops to send thither, and there was no money forthcoming. The king's treasurer, it was said, had but four crowns in the chest. If Orléans were taken, the king would perhaps be reduced to seeking a refuge in Spain or in Scotland. Joan promised to set Orléans free. The Orléanese themselves were clamorous for her. Dunois kept up their spirits with the expectation of this marvellous assistance. It was decided that the king should receive her. She had assigned to her for residence an apartment in the tower of the Coudray, a block of quarters adjoining the royal mansion, and she was committed to the charge of William Bellier, an officer of the king's household, whose wife was a woman of great piety and excellent fame. On the ninth of March, 1429, Joan was at last introduced into the king's presence by the Count of Vendôme, high steward, in the great hall on the first story, a portion of the wall and the fireplace being still visible in the present day. It was evening, candlelight, and nearly three hundred knights were present. Charles kept himself a little aloof, amidst a group of warriors and courtiers more richly dressed than he. According to some chroniclers, Joan had demanded that she should not be deceived, and should have pointed out to her him to whom she was to speak. Others affirmed that she went straight to the king, whom she had never seen, accosting him humbly and simply like a poor little shepherdess, says an eyewitness, and according to another account, making the usual bends and reverences as if she had been brought up at court. Whatever may have been her outward behavior, gentle dauphin, she said to the king, for she did not think it right to call him king so long as he was not crowned. My name is Joan the Maid. The King of Heaven sendeth you word by me that you shall be anointed and crowned in the city of Rheims, and shall be lieutenant of the King of Heaven, who is King of France. It is God's pleasure that our enemies the English should depart to their own country. If they depart, no evil will come to them, and the kingdom is sure to continue yours. Charles was impressed without being convinced, as so many others had been before, or were as he was on that very day. He saw Joan again several times. She did not delude herself as to the doubts he still entertained. "'Gentle Dauphin,' she said to him one day, "'why do you not believe me? I say unto you that God hath compassion on you, your kingdom, and your people. Saint Louis and Charlemagne are kneeling before him, making prayer for you, and I will say unto you, so please you, a thing which will give you to understand that you ought to believe me. Charles gave her audience on this occasion in the presence, according to some accounts, of four witnesses, the most trusted of his intimates, who swore to reveal nothing, and, according to others, completely alone. What she said to him there is none who knows, wrote Alan Chartier, a short time after, in July 1429, but it is quite certain that he was all radiant with joy thereat, at a revolution from the Holy Spirit. Monsieur Wallop, after a scrupulous sifting of evidence, has given the following exposition of this mysterious interview. Sir de Boisy, he says, who was in his youth one of the gentlemen of the bedchamber on the most familiar terms with Charles the Seventh, told Peter Sala, giving the king himself as his authority for the story, that one day, at the period of his greatest adversity, the prince, 
vainly looking for a remedy against so many troubles, entered in the morning alone into his oratory, and there, without uttering a word aloud, made prayer to God from the depths of his heart that if he were the true heir, issue of the house of France, and a doubt was possible with such a queen as Isabel of Bavaria, and the kingdom ought justly to be his, God would be pleased to keep and defend it for him, if not, to give him grace to escape without death or imprisonment, and find safety in Spain or in Scotland, where he intended, in the last resort, to seek a refuge. This prayer, known to God alone, the maid recalled to the mind of Charles the Seventh, and thus is explained the joy which, as the witnesses say, he testified, whilst none at that time knew the cause. Joan, by this revelation, not only caused the king to believe in her, she caused him to believe in himself, and his right and title. Though she never spoke in that way as of her own motion to the king, it was always a superior power speaking by her voice. I tell thee on behalf of my lord that thou art true heir of France, and son of the king. Whether Charles the Seventh were or were not convinced by this interview of Joan's divine mission, he clearly saw that many of those about him had little or no faith in it, and that other proofs were required to upset their doubts. He resolved to go to Portier, where his council, the Parliament, and several learned members of the University of Paris were in session, and have Joan put to the strictest examination. When she learned her destination, she said, In the name of God, I know that I shall have tough work there, but my Lord will help me. Let us go then, for God's sake. On her arrival at Portier, on the 11th of March, 1429, she was placed in one of the most respectable families in the town, that of John Rabuteau, advocate-general in Parliament. The Archbishop of Rheims, Reginald de Chartres, Chancellor of France, five bishops, the king's counsellors, several learned doctors, and amongst others Father Seguin, an austere and harsh Dominican, repaired thither to question her. When she saw them come in, she went and sat down at the end of the bench, and asked them what they wanted with her. For two hours they set themselves to the task of showing her, by fair and gentle arguments, that she was not entitled to belief. Joan, said William Amory, professor of theology, you ask for men-at-arms, and you say that it is God's pleasure that the English should leave the kingdom of France, and depart to their own land. If so, there is no need of men-at-arms, for God's pleasure alone can discomfit them, and force them to return to their homes. In the name of God, answered Joan, the men-at-arms will do battle, and God will give them victory. Master William did not urge his point. The Dominican Segun, a very sour man, says the chronicle, asked Joan what language the voices spoke to her. Better than yours, answered Joan. The doctor spoke the Limousin dialect. Do you believe in God? he asked ill-humouredly. More than you do, retorted Joan, offended. Well, rejoined the monk, God forbids belief in you without some sign tending thereto. I shall not give the king advice to trust men-at-arms to you, and put them in peril on your simple word. In the name of God, said Joan, I am not come to Portier to show signs. Take me to Orléans, and I will give you signs of what I am sent for. Let me have ever so few men-at-arms given to me, and I will go to Orléans. Then, addressing another of the examiners, Master Peter of Versailles, who was afterwards Bishop of Mew, she said, I know nor A nor B, but in our Lord's book there is more than in your books. I come on behalf of the King of Heaven, to cause the siege of Orléans to be raised, and to take the King to Rheims, that he may be crowned and anointed there. 
The examination was prolonged for a fortnight, not without symptoms of impatience on the part of Joan. At the end of it, she said to one of the doctors, John Erot, Have you paper and ink? Write what I shall say to you. And she dictated a form of letter which became, some weeks later, the manifesto addressed in a more developed shape by her from Orléans to the English, calling upon them to raise the siege and put a stop to the war. The chief of those piously and patriotically heroic phrases were as follows. Jesu Maria, King of England, Account to the King of Heaven for his blood royal. Give up to the maid the keys of all the good towns you have taken by force. She is come from God to avenge the blood royal, and quite ready to make peace, if you will render a proper account. If you do not, so I am a war-chief. In whatsoever place I shall fall with your folks in France, if they be not willing to obey. I shall make them get thence, whether they will or not and if they be willing to obey, I will receive them to mercy. The maid cometh from the king of heaven as his representative, to thrust you out of France. She doth promise and certify you that she will make therein such a mighty ha-ha, a great tumult, that for a thousand years hitherto in France was never the like. Duke of Bedford, who you call yourself regent of France, the maid doth pray you and request you not to bring destruction on yourself. If you do not justice toward her, she will do the finest deed ever in Christendom. Writ on Tuesday in the Great Week, Easter Week, March, 1429. Subscribed, Hearken to the News from God and the Maid. At the end of their examination, the doctors decided in Joan's favor. Two of them, the Bishop of Castres, Gerard Maché, the King's Confessor, and Master John Erot, recognized the divine nature of her mission. She was, they said, the virgin foretold in the ancient prophecies, notably in those of Merlin, and the most exacting amongst them approved of the king's having neither accepted nor rejected, with levity, the promises made by Joan. After a grave inquiry there had been discovered in her, they said, not but goodness, humility, devotion, honesty, simplicity. Before Orléans she professes to be going to show her sign, so she must be taken to Orléans, for to give her up without any appearance on her part of evil would be to fight against the Holy Spirit, and to become unworthy of aid from God. After the doctor's examination came that of the women. Three of the greatest ladies in France, Yolande of Aragon, Queen of Sicily, the Countess of Gaucourt, wife of the Governor of Orléans, and Joan de Mortimer, wife of Robert Le Mecon, Baron of Trove, were charged to examine Joan as to her life as a woman. They found therein nothing but truth, virtue, and modesty. She spoke to them with such sweetness and grace, says the chronicle, that she drew tears from their eyes, and she excused herself to them for the dress she wore, and for which the sternest doctors had not dreamed of reproaching her. It is more decent, said the Archbishop of Embrun, to do such things in man's dress, since they must be done along with men. The men of intelligence at court bowed down before this village saint, who was coming to bring the king, in his peril, assistance from God. The most valiant men of war were moved by the confident outbursts of her patriotic courage, and the people everywhere welcomed her with faith and enthusiasm. Joan had, as yet, only just appeared, and already she was the heaven-sent interpretress of the nation's feeling, the hope of the people of France. End of chapter 24, part 2